Today is January the 25th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Google to launch DeepMind to rival ChatGBT. Google's subsidiary, DeepMind, says it could launch a ChatGBT rival soon, and its chatbot promises to be a safer kind of AI assistant. DeepMind was acquired by Google nine years ago. However, with ChatGBT stealing the recent headlines, DeepMind CEO Dennis Hasabis said that it's considering releasing its own chatbot called Sparrow for private beta sometime in 2023. Sparrow was introduced to the world last year as a proof of concept in a research paper that described it as a dialogue agent that's useful and reduces the risk of unsafe and inappropriate answers. Despite some misgivings about the potential dangers of chatbots, which DeepMind says includes inaccurate or invented for information, it seems that Sparrow could be ready to take flight soon in beta form. Given DeepMind's close relationship to Google, it could effectively become the search giant's answer to ChatGBT. The slight delay to Sparrow's launch is, according to Dennis Hasabis, down to DeepMind's keenness to make sure it has important features that ChatGBT lacks most notably citing specific sources. From DeepMind's research paper, it also sounds like Sparrow will initially be more constrained and conservative than ChatGBT. The latter has gone viral with its impressive ability to help everyone from coders to armchair poets, but it also caused alarms with its capacity for discriminatory comments and malware writing skills. DeepMind has raised the issue of the behavior-constraining rules that Sparrow built on. Along with its willingness to decline to answer questions in contexts where it is appropriate to defer to humans. In earlier tests, Sparrow apparently provided a plausible answer and crucially supported it with evidence 78% of the time when asked a factual question. But its true abilities will become clearer when that public beta is launched later this year. It will be the first AI chatbot debate between Google-affiliated Sparrow and the increasingly Microsoft-loving ChatGBT. Anyone who's used ChatGBT will know that it's capable of doing a pretty good imitation of intelligence on a number of subjects. While that's definitely a fun ride, AI chatbots also need moral intelligence and an ability to cite sources, and that's where DeepMind says its Sparrow dialogue agent is strongest. Taking this to the next level will need tons of external input. DeepMind says that developing better rules for its AI assistant will require both expert input on many topics, including policymakers, social scientists, and ethicists, and participatory input from a diverse array of users and affected groups. Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, which created ChatGBT, has similarly talked about difficulties in opening up AI chatbots without causing collateral damage. He admitted there are going to be significant problems with the use of OpenAI tech over time. We will do our best but will not successfully anticipate every issue. ChatGBT is heading towards a monetized future with ChatGBT professional a paid-for tier. Google to slash 12,000 jobs as tech industry layoffs surge. Google's laying off 12,000 workers, becoming the latest technology company to trim staff after rapid expansions during the COVID-19 pandemic have worn off. 
Alphabet CEO Sandar Pichai said the layoffs reflect a rigorous review carried out by Google of its operations. The jobs being eliminated cut across Alphabet, product areas, functions, levels, and regions. The cuts represents just over 6% of Alphabet's workforce, which numbered 186,000 as of September 2022, according to a securities filing. Like numerous other large tech companies, Alphabet added thousands of workers during the pandemic and is now moving to cut costs ahead of a possible economic recession later this year. Laid-off employees in the United States will receive a severance package starting at 16-week salary plus two weeks for every additional year at Google, as well as six months of health care, job placement, services, and immigration support. As an almost 25-year-old company, we're bound to go through difficult economic cycles. These are important moments to sharpen our focus, re-engineer our cost base, and direct our talent and capital to our highest priorities, said Pinchow. Early this week, Microsoft announced 10,000 job cuts, or nearly 5,000 of its workforce. Also in January, Amazon said it would cut 18,000 jobs. Facebook parent Meta announced it is eliminating 11,000 positions, and software maker Salesforce said it would shed 7,000 workers. Netflix, Peloton, Twitter, and other industry players have also announced sizable layoffs or scaled back hiring in recent months. All the tech giants have now entered the layoff game. Job cuts are hitting the smaller players as well. UK-based cybersecurity firm Sophos laid off 450 employees or 10% of its global workforce. Cryptocurrency trading platform Coinbase cut 20% of its workforce, about 950 jobs, in its second round of layoffs in less than a year. The technology industry shed the most jobs of any sector last year, eliminating nearly 100,000 positions in 2022 after expanding rapidly during the pandemic. 5% to 10% headcount cuts across the tech sector as many of these companies, both big and small, were spending money like 1980s rock stars and now need to rein in the expense controls ahead of a softer economy. Google has cut most of the jobs at Area 120. Area 51 is a secret U.S. Air Force military installation located at Groom Lake in southern Nevada. It is administered by Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California. The installation has been the focus of numerous conspiracies involving extraterrestrial life, though its only confirmed use is as a flight testing facility. Well, one of the big tech companies has such a similar facility in product planning and development. Area 120 has three office locations, San Francisco, Palo Alto, and New York City. It receives financial support to begin turning their brain children into real businesses, including the ability to staff up with recruits from within Google or outside the company. Area 120 is Google's in-house incubator in which employees work on 20% project product ideas. It has helped develop Gmail, AdSense, Google News, and Google Cardboard. The division was created by Sundar Pinchai in March 2016 and has since spawned over 50 projects. The objective for the Area 120 program is to incubate products that graduate back to Google, of course. In November 2021, the division was reorganized under a new division called Google Labs, but we still call it Area 120 is where Google do their skunk works. It is the in-house incubator responsible for products. It has been significantly affected, however, by broader layoffs at Google parent company Alphabet. The majority of the Area 120 team has been winding down and that only three projects from the division will graduate later this year into core Google product areas. The spokesperson for Google wouldn't say which specific projects were being shuttered or graduating. Previously, Area 120 was incubating 
pilots like the workplace video platform Threadit, Spectrum Marketplace, Orion, Document Scanner Stack, and more. At any given time, it usually has around 20 projects underway, though not all of them were made public. Allowed, which is developing a platform video creators can use to quickly dub might have videos, is one of the projects staying. Given the clear synergy such an app with Google products like YouTube, it makes sense. Employees in the United States who were affected have been told of layoffs at Area 120. But in other countries, this process will take longer and is subject to local laws and practices. Over the years, the division has launched a number of successful products, including the HTML5 gaming platform, GameSnacks, now integrated with Google Chrome. AI-powered conversational ads platform, AdLingo, which exited to Google Cloud, and video platforms, Tangi and Shoploop, which exited to Google Search and Shopping. Area 120 underwent a reorg in 2021 that saw the group move into new Google Labs division led by Clay Bavor, where it lived alongside other forward-looking efforts at Google having to do with augmented reality, virtual reality, and video conferencing. Then came cuts. Last September, Google canceled half the projects at Area 120 and reduced the program's staffing. Area 120 had fewer than 100 employees after the previous round of cuts. Google has declined to comment on the number of employees. DirecTV lays off hundreds of managers as cord cutting accelerates. DirecTV is laying off hundreds of employees, roughly 10% of its upper ranks, as the company looks to reduce costs. The cost reduction comes as cord cutting accelerates, especially at satellite TV distributors such as DirecTV. DirecTV is laying off hundreds of employees, roughly 10% of the upper ranks, as the company looks to reduce costs amid the heightened pain of cord cutting for pay TV providers, according to people familiar with the matter. The affected employee's last day was January the 20th. The entire pay TV industry is impacted by the secular decline and the increasing rates to secure and distribute programming. A DirecTV spokesperson said in a statement, we're adjusting our operations costs to align with these changes and will continue to invest in new entertainment products and service enhancements. DirecTV became a private company in 2021 when AT&T entered into a deal with private equity firm TBG to spin off DirecTV and its related businesses. With an implied enterprise value of $16.5 billion at the time, AT&T acquired DirecTV in 2015 for $48.5 billion and the assumption of debt. DirecTV and its peers have long been under pressure as customers cut the cord and opt for streaming services. The rate of cord cutting accelerated in the third quarter. Satellite TV providers such as DirecTV and Dish in particular have seen some of the highest paid TV subscriber losses in recent years. While DirecTV no longer publicly reports its subscriber base, the company has about 13 million customers, according to analyst reports and one of the people familiar with the job cuts. DirecTV reportedly lost around 500,000 customers in its most recent quarter. Although DirecTV losses slowed during the height of the pandemic, they recently accelerated to nearly 17%. In addition to satellite TV, the company also offers DirecTV Stream, an internet TV bundle similar to Google's YouTube TV and Dish's Sling. Competition has ramped up in rural areas as broadband and fixed wireless companies build out networks in areas where satellite TV providers were once some of the only TV providers. Meanwhile, fees to carry broadcasts and cable channels continue to rise. 
executives across the industry have cited rising fees as partly responsible for accelerating pay TV customer losses in recent years. Plus, media companies have been offering more of the content traditionally found on linear TV, such as the weekly shows, live events, and sports on streaming services, further pulling value from the pay TV bundle. DirecTV contract recently ended for the rights to the NFL Sunday ticket, package of -of out-of-market Sunday games. It held the rights since the inception of Sunday ticket in 1994 and had been losing about $500 million annually on the package. CNET reviewing accuracy of all its AI-written articles. ChatGBT can generate text, but it hasn't yet learned to be accurate. CNET has been forced to issue multiple major corrections to published articles on CNET, created via ChatGBT. For more than two months, CNET has been pumping out posts generated by ChatGBT. The site has published 78 of these articles total, and up to 12 in a single day, originally under the byline CNET Money Staff and now just CNET Money. Initially, the outlet seems eager to have its AI authorship fly under the radar, disclosing the lack of a human writer only in an obscure byline description on the robot's author page. CNET didn't identify nor aim to fix all inaccuracies. CNET has claimed that all of its AI-generated articles are reviewed, fact-checked, and edited by real human staff, and each post has an editor's name attached to it in the byline. But clearly, that alleged oversight isn't enough to stop ChatGBT's many-generated mistakes from slipping through the cracks. Usually, when an author approaches an article, particularly an explainer as basic as what is compound interest, it's safe to assume that the writer has done their best to provide accurate information. But with AI, there is no intent, only the product. An editor evaluating an AI-generated text cannot assume anything and instead has to take an exacting critical eye to every phrase and punctuation mark. It's a different type of task from editing a person and one people might not be well equipped for considering the degree of complete, unfailing attention it must take and the high volume scene that seems to be aiming for with its ChatGBT-produced stories. It's easy to understand, though not excusable, that when sifting through piles of AI-generated posts, an editor could miss an error about the nature of interest rates among the authoritative-sounding string of statements. When writing gets outsourced to AI, editors end up bearing the burden, and their failure seems inevitable. And the failures are almost certainly not just limited to one article. Nearly all of CNET's AI-written articles now come with an editor's note at the top which says, We are currently reviewing this story for accuracy. If we find errors, we will update and issue corrections, indicating the outlet has realized the inadequacy of its initial editing process. What does this secondary review process mean? Well, will each story be reread for accuracy by the same editor, a different editor, an AI fact checker? CNET's public relations manager response referred to an earlier statement. We are actively reviewing all our AI-assisted pieces to make sure no further inaccuracies made it through the editing process. We will continue to issue any necessary corrections according to CNET's correction policy. Given the apparent high likelihood of AI-generated errors, one might ask why CNET is pivoting away from people to robots. Other journalistic outlets like the Associated Press also use artificial intelligence, but only in very limited contexts, like filling information into preset templates and these narrower settings. The use of AI seems intended to free up journalists to do other work more worthy of their time. But CNET's application of the technology is clearly different in both scope and intent. All the articles published under the CNET money byline are very general explainers with plain language questions as headlines. They are clearly optimized to take advantage of Google's search algorithms 
and to end up at the top of the people's results pages. From a financial perspective, you can't beat AI. There's no overhead cost, and there's no human limit to how much can be produced in a day. But from a journalistic viewpoint, AI generation is a looming crisis wherein accuracy becomes entirely secondary in a world where AI posts become an accepted norm, accuracy should be of primary concern. When do you really need to upgrade your PC? Good question. Exactly when do you need to upgrade your hardware? For many enterprise corporations, the three-year rule might be a tangible metric for replacement of equipment. However, for the home consumer user, the metric is quite different. It is the ability to cost-effectively upgrade your existing system. For example, if your computer can't be upgraded to Windows 10 or 11, you're going to start losing feature support now that Windows 7 and 8 are officially dead. Fact is, there's plenty of older hardware that still functions just fine. If it still runs smoothly, you don't have to be replacing it. You may find that upgrading the system with memory, if possible, results in the most cost-effective upgrade to run faster. There is now a trend for manufacturers, however, to limit how much memory can be installed coupled with some memory modules soldered on and is not replaceable. PC manufacturers experience a low in PC purchases when the consumer could upgrade at a portion of the cost in lieu of buying a new system. You could replace your hard disk storage device with a solid-state device. If you're still using an old hard disk device, consider replacement with a new drive. SSD storage is pretty cheap these days, and even a standard SATA 3 SSD will be massively faster than an aging hard drive, and they last longer too, due to their lack of moving parts. By the way, a half a terabyte solid-state drive, new, can be purchased for under $30. Assuming you already got an SSD, you hopefully shouldn't need to upgrade it unless it fails. There's one key caveat here, though. If you think you need more storage capacity for your files, it's on you to be proactive and get your hands on a larger drive or secondary drive since most computers can support more than one SSD. An important question to ask yourself when you're looking to upgrade your computer or buy something entirely new, what do you personally need from your system? The answer to this question will dictate exactly how old it's acceptable for your hardware to be. When it comes to Intel processors specifically, it's important to note that 12th generation and newer Intel Core CPUs feature a new type of core microarchitecture called Big Dot Little, which splits the total core count into performance and efficiency cores. This architecture is great for running multiple tasks simultaneously. The efficiency cores handle background processes, while the performance cores deals with your primary workload. This is fantastic for Twitch streamers who need their streaming software running behind the scenes while they play in a game. Intel's new CPUs offer incredible performance, but you'll need a new motherboard to go with it. Of course, sometimes you simply have no choice but to upgrade a component or two. If you upgrade to a new Intel Core or AMD Ryzen processor right now, you'll need to get a new motherboard, since the CPU socket has been changed and it won't support older chips. This may create its own upgrade requirements, since your new motherboard might use DDR5 RAM rather than the more widely used DDR4. By the way, I wouldn't suggest changing motherboards on a laptop. If the laptop is now obsolete, just get a new machine. Power requirements are another common cause of knock-on upgrades like this. If you buy a beefy new GPU for your gaming PC, there's a decent chance you'll need to get a higher capacity power supply in order to run it properly. You should also be wary of bottlenecking if you upgrade only a single component. Does your PC have enough memory to get the best performance out of your new CPU? With all this in mind, consider these guidelines for when and if you need to upgrade your computer. Is it more than 10 years old? If so, definitely time to consider upgrade. Individual components of this age will likely be reaching the end of their physical lifespan, 
and won't be getting the same kind of virtual support from the manufacturer that you may need. Also, you don't want to wait until the equipment totally fails and then you'll have a more difficult time replacing it or finding a replacement. Does it still do everything you need it to do? If so, you don't need to upgrade. If you've got a perfectly functional laptop or desktop PC that can handle all the daily tasks you want to throw at it, there's really no need to buy anything new. Doing so only costs you money you need not need to spend. And just remember, for every dollar you want to spend, you got to earn $2 to make that $1. Can I get away with only upgrading one component? The answer here is usually, though not always, no. The older your system, the more likely it is that replacing just one part will create compatibility issues or bottlenecks. Upgrading your PC piecemeal only works if you can afford to do it regularly. If you've got an ancient PC that you want to resurrect, it's better to work out exactly which parts are going to hold you back if you don't upgrade them. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. Good day, mate. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. All right, I'll explain that in a moment. This really is the time where we set aside a few moments to talk about the IT, the workplace, the all of the different things in the work environment that might be impacting us. And the, when I saw this headline, I, I knew that I had to talk about this topic. And this topic is something that is important to everybody not just IT folks, and it's a little bit less IT than normal. So I started off with that Aussie accent. And what what this whole idea, the whole naming of this idea, it's quite obvious, it's quite plain when we explain that the Aussies developed something called the boomerang. You know, you go on out and you throw it with that, that just that right amount of backspin on it and it flies through the air and it just goes in a nice little uh, kind of a circle and comes right back to you, the boomerang. And lately, we are seeing an increase, a spike in the amount of people who are job boomeranging. Job boomerang? Yes, it's it's exactly. I mean, this is so self-explanatory, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's the idea that you work at company A, and then you get hired by company B. However, you left company A. However, you arrived at company B. You've decided you've had your stay at company B, and now you're ready to go back to company A. You've boomeranged around to back where you started. Now, this isn't an old concept. This isn't something that has just popped up in, in recent years. But one of the things that is shifting is how many people are more accepting of bringing back those boomeranging employees than ever before. I remember working at one company. And uh, and the big, huge, big, huge news there or not so much news is if you ever left, it was 100 percent guaranteed that you would never be hired back. And yet I knew someone who had been hired back multiple times, including after I found out about that. But. As it sits, in 2019, 10% of the people starting up at Microsoft were actually boomerangs. They were actually people who had already worked at Microsoft and they were coming back from their ventures elsewhere. Hiring former employees is something that allows an employer to take a new assessment of that former employee and go, you know what? They really did know their stuff. They really did know how to do the job, and they're far more efficient than anybody we've had. 
or maybe even something a matter of you're coming back into a new position, but you're a known quantity. We know you. we don't have to bring you up to speed with the culture, with the environment here. You know a lot of the key players that are along through here, so that works out really well. So there's a lot to this, and there's a lot that's going to be uh, probably happening as different companies are reassessing how they're doing hiring, especially since there are more open jobs than job seekers right now. So if you're interested in doing this, if you're interested in job boomeranging, uh, in going back to someplace you've already been, I want to remind you first to assess, did you leave on good standing with the previous company? I'll tell you, every company I've left, I've always tried my best to to put forth my best foot going out the door saying, you know what? Hey, it was great working with everybody. This is just another better opportunity for me. And that's what we have to always realize. We have to be in this for ourselves. I want you to also think about something else. I want you to think about you're leaving the old place for a reason. You moved from company A to company B. Why did you move away from company A? Not necessarily move to company B. Oh, I moved for for more money. Well, it depends. Yeah, okay, if you if you moved for 5%, that 5% raise, that's not a whole lot. There were other reasons. If you moved for a big chunk of change, oh, I got a 50% raise out of it or a 30% raise. And they and the old company couldn't make it. Company A couldn't provide me that kind of money. You know, maybe if you know that idea of going back to company A isn't going to be all that bad. It could be something good. You have to feel this out. You also should be in touch with the old folks at the old company, company A, and you've got to find out if they're going to be interested. And this is something that you've got to assess this for yourself. You have to do your research. You have to see how welcome you're going to be. You also have to see, am I going back to something that is that they're going to expect me to fix all kinds of problems that happened in the aftermath of my leaving? How do you do that? Yeah, inside information. You got to talk to your old manager, your old coworkers. You got to feel it out. You got to think about it. And as you're doing that, you've got to reassess. Yeah, I did leave for money, but I also left because this one guy was really obnoxious. Maybe, maybe not. You know, feel it out. Think about it. It's something that nobody else can do for you. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Streaming music services. Streaming music services aren't quite as similar as you might think. There are now several music streaming services to choose from. They can all seem pretty similar. It's not always clear where the differences are. Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube Music are certainly well-known and high-profile and all offer a comprehensive streaming music library, plus a ton of useful features. However, the way that music playback works on Spotify, and the way that music playback works on Apple Music and YouTube Music is fundamentally different. And if you only ever use one of these services, it's something you might not be aware of. You can load up Spotify playlists on a whole host of devices. Phones, tablets, smartwatches, laptops, smart speakers, car stereos, TVs, and more. There's even a web player as well as desktop apps. So you've got a choice of options. When you're listening to music on Windows or Mac OS, most of Spotify's functions are available across all of these different devices too. However, despite of all of these devices' options, you can only play one Spotify playlist at a time. Fire up playlists on your Windows computer, and the same playlist shows up on Android. Start listening to a series of tunes in the TV app, and those same tunes get loaded in the web player. Changing playlists on one device does the same action everywhere. You can even control playback on one device 
from a different device thanks to Spotify Connect. Start playback on a Mac and you can start and stop it from an iPhone, for example. This works fantastically well in certain situations, such as when you're heading out in the car and want to carry on listening to the same tunes that you are just enjoying on your smartphone. Where it doesn't work so well is if you say you want to queue up one playlist in the kitchen and a different playlist in the study. While it only takes a couple of clicks or taps to switch playlists when you switch locations, Spotify won't remember where you were in each playlist as you move between them. It's not as convenient as having two playlists on the go simultaneously on two different devices. There are certain workarounds. You can put one of your devices into offline mode and use cache tracks, which will enable separate listening that doesn't sync with your other devices, but does leave you without a connection to the web on that particular device. You can also set up a family account, which gives you separate profiles for individual people and separate listening activity. Using a single account, though, your listening is synchronized across every device with Spotify installed, for better or worse. Like Spotify, Apple Music and YouTube Music are available on a whole host of devices. Apple even makes an Apple Music app for Android. There's a lot of support across smart speakers and TV platforms and car dashboards. And both these music streaming services can play in a web browser tab too. Apple Music also has a comprehensive desktop program you can make use of. The crucial difference between these two services and Spotify is that your listening is separate on all of your devices. You can queue up one series of albums on your Mac, for example, and a different series of albums on your iPhone. You can even have multiple browser tabs open for YouTube Music at the same time, or playing different tunes. This works really well if you regularly jump between different types of music. If you switch between playlists of upbeat pop and lengthy instrumentals at work, for example, you can have each playlist open in a separate browser tab. Your position in each browser tab is remembered, so you don't have to keep starting again from the beginning. Where it's not as good as when you're jumping between different rooms or different devices. Playback isn't automatically synced across apps, as it is with Spotify. There are other options for quickly switching the same music between devices, including AirPlay and the Chromecast protocol. But if you open up the app on your phone, you won't instantly see what you were just listening to on your laptop. Those are two quite different ways of managing music streaming, and everyone will have their preference because they can both be useful. However, it's something that's not often mentioned when these streaming services are compared, and it shows that they're not quite as similar and interchangeable as you might think. Free DOS puts out first new version in six years. DOS, also known as IBM DOS, PC DOS, and now Free DOS, was initially released back in August of 1981. And it's more fun than ever, nearly six years after its last release. FreeDOS 1.3 came out, in case you're feeling nostalgic, for a 1980s enterprise-grade operating system. DOS ain't dead. Although the long history of MS-DOS officially ended with version 6.22 in 1994, there have long been multiple other DOS-compatible operating systems out there, and unlike all the others, FreeDOS is open source, legal, legitimate, and free to use. IBM continued development on PC-DOS until 2003, and Big Blue still hosts downloads of the last version, PC-DOS 7.1, complete with FAT32 and LBA support. Its lead developer, Vernon Brooks, has a comprehensive reference site with all you could ever need to know about DOS's history. Digital Research's DRDOS was bought by Novell, sold off to Caldera, and ended up an important exhibit in the Department of Justice 
monopoly case against Microsoft in the 1990s. Caldera released the source code to the DRDOS 7.01 kernel, but changed its mind and closed it again. So although it too is available, the legality of using it is questionable. If you ask nicely, Tuxura will still sell you Datalite ROM DOS, and Russian language speakers may prefer PHY TechSoft or PTS DOS, which leaves FreeDOS a totally free and unencumbered MS-DOS compatible operating system written from scratch as open source. It still has 608 kilobytes of free base memory. It installs to a FAT32 partition with optional support for long file names. It comes with its own full-screen text editor. It's still DOS. If you want to run it on bare metal, you'll need a PC with a BIOS. It's not compatible with GPT disk partitioning or UFI unless the latter has a compatibility support module. It's a single tasking operating system, and although it comes with a memory manager that can support nearly 4 gigabytes of RAM, all the action happens in the first 640 kilobytes. If you want to get a feel of how things were before graphical desktops, though, there is quite a lot of legal pro-grade software out there. Microsoft made Word 5.5 for DOS a free download as a Y2K fix, and you can still download it from archive.org. There's still tons of DOS shareware out there, such as what is in the PC Blue library. It is available on archive.org. The PC Blue library is a collection of public domain and user-supported software with individual .zip files for each official item. The PC Blue Library of Public Domain and User-Supported Software is sponsored by the New York Amateur Computer Club and the Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey. For over 10 years, the library was distributed directly to over 100 computer clubs around the world. The last mainstream DOS-based operating system was Windows ME, which went out of support 20 years ago. There is a lot of high-quality DOS software available, especially as shareware. Some DOS apps from its heyday are still reappearing today as rights revert to the original owners who choose to upload the source code to GitHub. Today, laptop manufacturers in some countries bundle free DOS with new machines in order to keep the price to customers as low as possible, so people are still seeing DOS for the first time. Even today, and some of them keep using it, even if only to improve their skills. Free DOS is a little bit different from the old Microsoft and IBM variants. You'll have no problem picking up the changes, however. What is dead may never die. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. Hey, it's CES over yet. I have no clue. <laughs> well, it isn't here because we got a bunch of products to go over. Yeah, really? Okay. Yeah. Let's, let, let's start at my hand, at my fingertips. Yes, yes. Now, I'm not a mouse guy. I'm a trackball guy. Yeah, yeah. So when they invited me to review mm-hmm. the new Kensington Slim Blade Pro, trackball. Mm-hmm. Hey, I jumped at it. I wanted to see this thing, but let me describe it. Sure. The ball the ball is huge. Okay. In a land of ping pong balls, it's a tennis ball. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's about, it's about twice the diameter of my other trackball balls. It's base wedge. It's okay. about the size, the footprint of a paperback book. It's okay. a big thing. All right. I mean, Extend your desk already. I mean, get rid of the keyboard. You got no room left for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So, so you're. I mean, people, people, you have this idea with trackballs that you have to go with something that's the mouse size. But, but what you're describing is more of mouse pad size. Yeah, which and, and that space to, is already there. Now, I've I've had bigger trackballs. They're good for really precision stuff, like when you're doing yeah, graphics yeah, and editing. Yeah. This this isn't quite that. Uh, the the, the pad, that base has four quadrants with it that have buttons. There's a left click, a right click, a middle click, and a go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. When you 
turn the ball like a doorknob, yeah, there's the scroll function. Interesting. Okay, so now that that's something that. Uh, I recall coming from uh, there was uh, something. This was this is the CAD world. Something called a space ball. Yeah, which like which that. allowed which allowed some three D manipulation when you're dealing with three uh, D CAD. So. Or or a little bit like the early audio players. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it, it, well, you can toggle a high DPI mode if you're looking for you know going a lot slower across the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think if I were doing something that needed that level of precision, you know, maybe Photoshop or a CAD project, mm-hmm. I'd reach for this trackball. Other than that, uh, everyday office and browser chores, make your own judgment. The, Ken, the Kensington Sunblade Pro trackball, big, flat, interesting features, but not handy, small, agile to my experience. Okay. Um, all right. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, also, Sensibo Elements yeah. is an indoor air quality monitor. I got one of those in. Uh, they talk about things you feel, uh, what they may really be telling you. And, and when you're dealing with AI and data and sensors, uh, mm-hmm. you, can, you can get something out of the CO2 level, for example. Why mm-hmm. are you sleeping in the daytime, you know? Uh, this is a small rectangle surrounded by a frame. Looks like it's floating there, kind of an avant-garde kind of look. Uh, inside, and, and it's got an app to let you read all this, it, it tells me the temperature, the humidity, the CO2 level, the ethanol level, in case I've been imbibing, I guess, uh, <laughs> the total VOCs, volatile organic compounds, which happens if you leave fuel bottles open, that's uh, a lot of noxious and flammable sure, fluids sure. and fuels. Uh, and for the dry, dusty side of breathing, it tells you the level of particulate matter at two and a half microns. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Now, I, I will show you. My ruler doesn't go down to microns. It <laughs> <laughs> Most so, people don't. Uh, no, I'd, just I'd have saying. To be, for the ruler to see it, I'd have to be breathing gravel, and that happens only when I'm trying to uh, blow the snow off the driveway. Uh, <laughs> But each, each of those measurements get, gets a, a, a numerical reading plus a little color-coded bar graph. And when you clump them all together, it gives you an overall air quality score with a written explanation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, there are also graphs if you want to track the trend lines. That's the sensible elements, IAQ so, monitor. So now, can it do anything uh, does, like... Uh, hook into uh, whether it's Google or Alexa or anything like that. I know you're you've strayed away from a lot of the IoT stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I have, and I haven't even investigated that. Let's assume yeah. that it does. What are you going to do? You know, let's well, assume uh, that it doesn't. Yeah, what are you going to do? I, I mean, you know, you, you use it to drive your fans in the house or something. Who knows? <laughs> I know. Uh, can we do one more? We got time for one sure, more. Sure. Yeah, we've got time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of skill sets, here yeah. too. If you make a fist and stick your thumb out, that's just about the length and diameter of the new Skill SKI-1L 4-volt USB rechargeable screwdriver with a circuit sensor, you know, that can audibly alert you to a live wire or a connection. Wait, wait, so wait, if, the size of my thumb? Fist and thumb. Fi- oh, fist and thumb. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, okay. It, 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 I call them sausage format. Little okay, all right. Mini screwdrivers. Not mini, right, mini. All right, yeah, mini, you know. yeah. Um, it uh, comes with one of those little hinged handle boxes with a slide close latch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of tool accessories okay. come with that. Uh, this one has a set of hex tips and accessories. So you can get to the screw head without wondering whether the driver can fit it. It, it, it just change the tip and you're done. Uh, it also has some accessories for that. Um, if there was some kind of New Year's resolution about cleaning up the kitchen drawer full of screwdrivers, you're done. I mean, except. <laughs> yeah. This is a compact straight-line sausage-shaped driver, and Skill also has a pistol-shaped compact 4-volt USB okay. rechargeable kit with tips and a USB charger and other goodies, including a tiny manual handle that can hold a bit and still fit into super small spaces. Okay. So, you know, when it's time to open up that kid's toy, you're not lost. <laughs> <laughs> These are both great drivers. They're handy, uh, really good for tight spaces. And uh, next time I'm putting a rack together, I'm going to reach for one of these. Hope, hopefully it'll drive the screw. Yeah. 
As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston, who's apparently very excited about uh, some of the new releases these days. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a presentation on my top 10 favorite or most frequently used Windows programs. Thursday, January the 26th, meeting time is 6.45 p.m., virtual meeting via Zoom, website is bcug.com. TechEd Connect, formerly Westchester PC Users Group, meets Thursday, February the 2nd. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, February the 3rd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Meeting site is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a presentation, Customizing Windows 10. Thursday, February the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, February the 10th at 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. The Kingsbyte Computer Club meets Tuesday, February the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And for more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of the gang, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, Marty Winston, and Rebecca Mercury, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.